Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. I love it. For the next three weeks, we're going to be in this uh, beyond, and um, I'm excited for it. We've got a lot, of, a lot of fun stuff ahead of us. I have a confession. Um, when we took communion, I didn't know it was going to be that short. I never took communion. So I just want to put that out there, church. I confess that. I will be here next tomorrow, and I'm going to take communion tomorrow. But I don't, I don't know if any of you noticed. Like, oh, we're, we're done already. I should have been paying attention in that meeting for sure. So when our uh, area, Chicago, when our area is brought up in conversation, it's usually not in the most positive way nowadays, is it? Like, am I right about that? Like when Chicago comes to mind or when Chicago hits the news, it's usually not about like the greatness of, you know, oh, deep dish pizza. That's what I think of when I think of, you know, Chicago or uh, how great, because we do have a cool skyline, great skyline, you know, or, or the nice, the nice, we have great zoos throughout the city or the, the wide coverage of the train system, you know, the L or the many great museums. We have fantastic museums like the Art Institute and the Field Museum are just beautiful uh, the music scene in Chicago is fantastic, or, you know, the iconic bean. I'm not a Chicago-raised guy, but when I first came here, those are like the things that impressed me when I, when I came to the Chicago area. But not much of this is talked about today when Chicago comes to mind. And it makes total sense, because Chicago is hurting. And so when you turn on the news, or, you know, you scroll on your feed, or when you get together with your neighbor or your friend, and you talk about Chicago, it's usually about the issues that Chicago is facing. Because Chicago is facing, you know, our area is facing real issues. There's crime and, and violence is a problem. And we can disagree on the solutions, but I think we can all agree crime and violence is an issue in, in our area, in the Chicago area. Because of this and other factors, corporations are moving out of this area and creating these greater financial deficits. Uh, Shelters in our area have seen more homelessness in the last year. I'm not trying to sound the alarm. Our, Our news does that enough. The point that I'm trying to make is that what has been historically a beautiful city with a very rich history you know, great location, a port town, welcoming many tourists, especially in the summer for great festivals and attractions. Today, the city, whether well-earned or not, has a reputation of being a city that is breaking or maybe even broken. To add to that, many churches throughout Chicago are closing their doors. Some blame it on, you know, COVID. Others blame it on the multiple large church scandals that have happened and the drama from, from that. Uh, some blame it on Christians just getting up and, and moving to more welcoming areas. And it, it could be just, it could be all of those. But regardless, here we are. Here we are, living in an area that has potential, but has been all but given up on. But what if you were placed here in this area at this time? For a purpose. Though you may dream of, you know, your plans to get out of here. Maybe you've been planning your escape to get out of this area. What if God has placed you here for such a time as this? Like, what if this is what he's called you to? Oh, the, like the dream communities, you know, everyone that everyone's running to, the, the sunny beaches, the, the less taxes, the, the less traffic, has a lot to offer. I've dreamt of it too, but comfort is also just a slow death. What if you and I are here for a divine reason? 
It's worth considering, and I know you don't even want to consider it, but we're going to go there anyways, and consider it we shall. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Really good you grab a Bible. we got Bibles in the chairs. It's page nine or, uh, 398 in the Bibles in the chairs, but Nehemiah chapter 1. Today we're going to take a bird's eye view of the book of Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is one of the most prolific leaders in Scripture. Uh, I, would, I would say he's the most unsung hero, uh, one of the most unsung heroes in Scripture, and uh, we're going to get to know him uh, even better in, in the next bit here. Let me pray, and we'll just jump right into this. Uh, God, I do thank you for your, for your word. We come before you realizing that we are your people, needing to hear from you. You are a great and mighty God who speaks to us, and you always speak through your word. And so, Father, regardless of the, of the weeks that we've had, and some of us might even be uh, exhausted after this week or just distracted on what we have coming up this next week, or just much on our mind, Father, I ask that you eliminate all distractions and really zero us in on what you have for us. May we approach your word humbly, submitting to what you have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as the lens of Scripture, if you weren't at our volunteer nights last couple nights, my dad made fun of me for that. Um, I'm going to keep I'm going to keep going with it just because it annoys Jordan and my dad. So I'm just going to keep saying it every week now. As the lens of Scripture zooms in, we find ourselves in a city that is engulfed in flames. It's 587 BC, and Jerusalem crackles from fire. Smoke rises off the high mountain. The smoldering coals create a thick smoke invading your eyes and almost blinding you. But you can hear the chaos, the coughing of shopkeepers trying to save what merchandise they have left, and the screams of half-singed mothers frantically searching for their children throughout the city, the cries of children looking for their mothers, men forming militias to protect their families. In the end, there's really no escaping this. They are decimated. And sections of the walls collapse into piles of rubble. The beautiful temple is plundered and leveled. It seems like all is lost. Like the great city, the city where God dwells himself, the city that, that is everything to God's people, now lies in shambles. And there it lies for the next 141 years. 141 years later, this is written by Nehemiah. Or it's the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, this is, you know, when we start off a book like this, reading a verse like this, it's like, you know, kind of feels like I'm reading somebody else's mail because there's a lot going on here that I have no idea. You know, I have no idea who this Nehemiah is. Hekeliah, I have no idea. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. You know, the month of, I don't even know what a Chislev is or I don't know where Susa is. And so this is, this is when we can like read verses like this, like, all right, I'm already lost. And then we stop reading scripture, right? You ever been there? It's like, I don't understand any of this. So why am I wasting my time here? Uh, I, I don't want to do that, of course. So I just want to unpack this a little bit because then it just kind of really sets us up for, for, for the rest of what we're going to get into. And I want to unpack this verse backwards because it paints this beautiful picture. Susa is the capital of Persia. Persia is the reigning superpower empire. So think of Susa like the major big city in that time. So it'd be like the D.C. or the London or it'd be like Rome during its time. Chislev is a month. It's late fall. So, you know, around November. So you just imagine the scene. Jerusalem still lies in ruins. It's been 141 years. Jerusalem lies in ruins. 
And about a thousand miles away, this, the city of Susa is the opposite. It's bustling with commerce and, and trade. Economy is, is good. It's a beautiful time of year. The leaves are changing. And so you have that crisp fall air blowing over crowded marketplaces. It's just a place you want to be. Susa was the city that you wanted to be in, especially during this time of year. It's just the perfect time of year. And there in Susa, we're introduced to this man named Nehemiah. He's Jewish. So his great, 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 great grandparents were taken from Jerusalem when it was demolished. But over the generations, his family has worked their way from the bottom up. Nehemiah has reached the top. He works for King Artaxerxes, the most powerful man in the world. Nehemiah at this point is set to live a comfortable life, a life of success, security, it's a great paycheck. It's the life that his grandparents wanted him to live. And like most people, Nehemiah is destined to live a cushy life, die, and be forgotten. But God has different plans for him. Out of the blue, some old friends show up and tell Nehemiah that Jerusalem, what Jerusalem is like. Hey, we're just in Jerusalem. It's still in shambles there. Like there's people living there. Some people have made their way back, but they live in shame. There's no walls. They're unprotected. Neighboring towns periodically pop in and pillage and abuse the women. People live there looking over their shoulder. They're living in shame in Jerusalem. Like the once great city that we take pride in as a, as a Jewish people, it, it, it's a city that you don't walk through at night which sounds a little familiar to us. It continues on, uh, verse, verse four. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, when I read this, I think that's really weird because this isn't new news, Nehemiah. How long has Jerusalem been in shambles? You remember this? Yeah, there you go, 141 years. 141 years. That would be like if, let's say, Monday morning, you go into the office, and your coworker, you're in the cubicle over, they come up to you and they say, hey, do you hear? And you're like, what, no, what, what, layoffs? Like, what's going on? And, and they say, no, oh my gosh, the Titanic, big ship, uh, it sunk. It hit a freaking iceberg, went down. Like, it sank. I'm devastated right now. You would look at your coworker and say, that happened 111 years ago. Uh, it's sad, but we're kind of past that now. It's old news. So Nehemiah, why are you weeping over a 141-year-old problem? And the answer to that is God is capturing Nehemiah's heart in a fresh new way. And I believe he wants to do the same with you. Because whether you like this city or not, whether you grew up in this city or not, grew up in this area, God has put you here, here you are. And he sees you as the right light for this dark place at this time. And the last thing this area needs is more complainers. It needs broken hearts. And that's in your notes. Our city needs followers with broken hearts. With broken hearts. My middle child, her name is Nora. And when Nora gets tired, she gets into these like feisty moods. She gets it from her mom. No, actually, it's totally me. Um, but like, you know, when she's tired, she just starts falling apart and she gets a little emotional, which I, I, I'm very similar. And so she'll come home from school. If it was like a long day, you know, from school, she'll just be feisty, you know, and complainy, you know, kind of mopey. It's like, I didn't like this class and blah, I don't like this school and blah, blah, blah. The problem is, is I figured her out because she's a girl version of me. And so I'll set her on my lap and I'll make her look me in the eye and I'll say, honey, 
I know you're hurting. What happened? And then the tears just flow. You know, so-and-so pokes fun at me for my glasses. And, and, and so I, I look at it, it's like, so it's not, that, it's not that you don't like that class, right? No. It's not that like you don't like that school, right? Because it's, it's a good school. Well, it's just that that person said something and it made you sad. Like, baby, you're not angry as much as you are sad. It's kind of like what Liza Palmer wrote. I love this. Anger is just sad's bodyguard. When you run into a really angry person, really what they are is just very, very sad. So my daughter is sad, but unfortunately, and, and most of us are like this, unfortunately, she feels more comfortable expressing anger than she does her broken heart. And the truth is, that's where our city, that's where our area is at right now. That's where a lot of us are at right now. Some of us are angry. And sure, there's a lot to be angry about. There's corruption, there's scandals, there's violence. It's easy to get very angry. I get angry. I feel anger with that stuff. There's enough anger, though. Not enough broken hearts. See, the problem is, is that anger tends to lead toward abandoning and division. And that's what we're seeing play out all around us, right? Division and abandonment. But a broken heart is something that God uses in great ways. And the truth is, Jerusalem didn't need another anger bodyguard. It needed a broken heart, and it found one in Nehemiah. And Nehemiah uses that broken heart to fuel future action. And this is where we pick it up. In the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. I know we're kind of, it's again, it's a 30,000 you know, foot view of this book. But chapter 2, verse 1. It says, in the month of uh, Nisan. Now, this is late March. So it's been about, what, four or five months since you know, he's heard the, these news. So it's been November to March. And, and I bring that up because uh, Nehemiah is not going to shoot from the hip on this. You know, he's got all these feelings, you know, he's a bit angry, he's, he's wept for days, he's been fasting, but he's not gonna compulsively just act out of emotion. This is what a lot of people do though, isn't it? You ever guilty of this? But you are, I feel some emotion. It's like, I gotta write this big post. I'll fire off this email. I gotta shoot this text off. Never a good idea. It's like, uh, I, I, love our, I love our younger staff. Um, they're just, they're a blast. I was hanging out with a, a bunch of them last night, um, just around a fire, and, and they just, they crack me up. There's a few of them. They, they come to me. <laughs> I have to like shut my door now, because they'll come to me, they'll pop into my office, and they, they have like, they want dating advice. So they'll come in, and, and without even like asking, they'll just be like, go on this like 10 minute thing about like this, this relationship issue that they're having. And I love it that they, you know, that they feel like they can come to me. But the whole time I'm thinking like, I'm the last person you want to come to for dating advice. But it's just, it's fantastic. And, and once in a while, they'll pop into my office on Monday morning and, and uh, they'll be like, yo, Junior, sermon was awesome. We are fired up. We want to go baptize homeless people in the city. We, we want to do that this week. Like they're ready to just like storm hell with water pistols. You know, they're just like, they're ready to go. And so, so I have a lot of fun with them with that. But you know, it's just like calming them down. It's like, all right, let's bridle. That's awesome passion. Let's like bridle that passion. Let's aim it well. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. That's why he says month of Nisan. He's like, it's been four months. I don't have this broken heart. I'm gonna quit my job. I'm out of here. It's been four months. He lets this broken heart sink in. He plans and he waits for the right moment. And some of us, it'd be good for us to remember that. It's hard though, isn't it? You get angry? It's like, I'm out of here. I got angry last year. Angry about something last year. I was like, you know what? I'm done Called a buddy of mine who's been, he's been trying to, don't worry, I'm not going anywhere, but I, I called him and was like, hey man, 
Um, you're in Florida. I'm ready to go to Florida. I'm done here. And, uh, and I, I'm angry. I'm, I made this, like, this decision out of, and now we got down the road. I was like, yeah, no, never mind. I'm, I, this is where God has called me to. But I talked to my wife. like, we cannot make decisions out of anger and out of fear. But when you feel that emotion, that's when you want to start firing off those decisions. A lot of people made terrible decisions these past couple of years just out of fear and out of anger. And that's why I love what Nehemiah does here. It's like, it's been four months, and I'm letting this sink in. Don't post, don't email, don't text, don't make big decisions out of emotions. I've been guilty of it, and I regret it each time. Feel it, let it sink in, but then allow the Holy Spirit to sift through those emotions with you to help you bridle it and then aim well. So Nehemiah is waiting for the right opportunity. He's got this broken heart. He's not quite sure what to do with it. He feels this pull to go back to this broken, dangerous city of Jerusalem, and he's just waiting for the right moment. It says, uh, in the 20th year of the King Artaxerxes, again, four months later, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. I just love scripture because this is so much fun. He's saying the wine was the perfect moment to bring this up to the king. Some of you moms, that's the right moment, isn't it? I, I know how it goes. Hey, the king is laid back. He's enjoying his wine. Like, this is a good time to bring something up. I, listen, I do this. I do this. I'll let you in on something. Uh, Pastor Brian and I do this all the time. Jordan and I have done this a few times, too, um, with my dad. So, like, if Brian and I have something that we need to bring up to my dad, or maybe even Jordan and I have something that we need to, like, some bad news we need to break to my dad, or, like, an idea that we're like, oh, I don't know if he's going to go for it, um, you know, some tough news, something, uh, we'll get together and we'll scheme. And we go, let's table that and let's wait until he's having a cigar and then we'll bring it up. That's, I, we, we do this all the time. You know, we don't want like some informal big meeting about this. Let's just wait until he's having a cigar because then he's relaxed. You know, he's enjoying conversation. His head is clear and he's just more open to talking, talking through things. This is exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. And he writes this. So the wine is before him. It's the perfect time to come to him. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And I love this too. I like that Nehemiah includes this because a lot of people today can't do this. Like, you know anyone? Of course you do. Uh, maybe, maybe you're even this person. But you know anyone where um, you know that when you talk to them or when you see them or when you ask them a question, you know, like, their answer is just going to be negative? You know, every time you're like, okay, I'm going to ask this question, but like, here we go. It's going to be negative. You know, Nehemiah is saying right here, he's like, that wasn't me, okay? I was sad. I had this broken heart. But I wasn't like venting to everybody. I wasn't trying to get everybody's ear. I was not sad in his presence. I wasn't a negative person, which is why he's going to be effective with the king. The king will listen to Nehemiah because Nehemiah isn't always complaining. One of the most common things I hear people say is like, it's like, man, the boss never listens to me. And I often wonder, is like, is it because you're always witching about stuff though? Just like whining about your work and poking holes and criticizing, like just dragging your feet. Like, of course the boss doesn't listen to you because nobody listens to the donkey that you have to drag on his butt. Some of us, some of us would be heard more by our bosses and some of us would be heard more by our spouses and some of us would be more effective with our kids and would be more effective with our teams if we could just quit negativity cold turkey. Just knock it off. Because here's what negativity does to you. It just turns the volume down on your voice. I'm not saying run around like a Pollyanna, just annoyingly optimist all the time. But we know the difference. Negativity turns the volume down on your voice. Luckily, that's not the case with Nehemiah. 
And then the following verses here, if you're in chapter two, in the following verses here, the king and him, they get to talking and the, the king says, like, yeah, give me a plan. And so in verses six through eight, Nehemiah gives his plan. So he gives like, number one, the dates that he'll be gone. Number two, he wants, uh, which is really kind of cool, he thought this through. He's like, I want diplomatic immunity through my travels because I got to travel through some countries where the reigning superpowers, so I want diplomatic immunity through my travels, protection. And then third, he requests lumber for gates. So he brings this whole, it's been four months, he's got a detailed plan, he's not shooting from the hip, he's got a detailed plan, and for fixing Jerusalem's wall. So Nehemiah gives big vision, and that gives us point number two. Our city needs followers with big vision, with big vision. Our world is starving. Your offices and your neighbor's homes are starving for vision. Chicago is starving for vision. Most homes don't have much vision for their family. No family vision of like, What's this family trying to accomplish? Ah, we're just trying to survive sports, you know, in school and keep the kids alive. Like no big vision for like what our family is trying to accomplish, what our home is trying to accomplish, what our home is really going after. Most offices, and yours might be this way, no great vision for the business and what the business is doing through the community. Like no vision for like impacting the market or impacting the world. Hey, we are, we are filling this great need. It's just all about like making, you know, bottom dollar and, and keeping the boss happy. That's, that's the vision of the office. And so everybody's just starving for vision and therefore very unhappy. Even personally, people don't have much vision for their lives. Less than 20% of people have goals in their life. That's crazy to me. What are we doing? Just living aimlessly. No vision, no great vision for their lives. Our neighbors are craving to be part of something bigger than themselves. More so today than ever before. And it's times like these where Christians should really stand out. We are a people of vision. We are created by a God. We bear his image and he has given us clear vision for our communities. That's us. I really do believe this. As Christians, a conversation with us should be completely refreshing almost every single time. Because talking to someone with vision is refreshing. That should be Christians. Like, I'll go as far as to say this. I believe, I, I believe, and it, it, some of it kind of freaks me out, but I really do believe that we are at a very vulnerable moment in history. Because when society craves vision, when society is hungry for vision, tragedies are born out of that. Like, for example, uh, like, think of, think of, the, the biggest villains throughout history. Most people would say Hitler, right? Like one of the greatest, not greatest, one of the worst villains ever. I mean, like maniac. It almost feels uncomfortable to like have a picture of Hitler in, in the church. But like, he's just like a dark, nasty maniac. And many wonder, you know, how does a sick man like this, a twisted person like Adolf Hitler, drum up so, such a large following? Like during his time, people loved him. How? And there's many factors to it. But one major factor is that in Germany, right before Hitler took power, Germany at the time felt absolutely hopeless, hurting. Nobody had any vision. It was the most educated country in the world at the time. And people were starving for vision and starving for hope. And so here comes this passionate man with vision for Germany. Nobody had that. So it struck a chord. People jumped on. They just got sucked right into it because he offered something that nobody else was offering. Vision. Tragedies are born out of visionless times. But on, on the flip side, there have been amazing movements throughout history that have also been born out of visionless times. So for example, did you guys see this? Anybody see uh, this movie right here at all? Jesus Revolution, saw it in, uh, yeah, I saw it a while back. It's, it's a good movie. It's uh, the story of the 1970s. 
you know, drugs were decimating society. Hopeless people were running to, to drugs. Suicide was skyrocketing. But it was the church that had a broken heart that offered a different vision, and people clung to that. So you had this massive movement throughout the United States in the 1970s as people left drugs and found Jesus because the church had a broken heart and offered vision. See, we find ourselves at a very pivotal moment right now. The world around us is starving and searching for vision, something to cling to. And the church must ask itself, what are we going to offer? Are we going to huddle up and retreat out of fear? Are we going to cast vision? Are we going to join the noise of the complainers? See, the truth is, complaining is just admitting you lack vision. It's really what it is. It's why, you, it's why you don't see legit leaders complain much. Because they have vision. This is just true across the board. Complain about your marriage, you don't have vision for your marriage then. Complain about your job, you just lack vision for your position. You complain about your city, you lack vision for the potential of your city. This is why the majority complain. And this is why the media makes big bucks. Because there's a lot of money to be made here. But when followers of Jesus allow their hearts to break and have vision for their community, this is the stuff that amazing stories are made of. Uh, flip over to chapter four. Chapter four. Again, we're just hitting that like 30,000 foot view of the whole book. But chapter four, uh, Nehemiah, he gets permission. He leaves his cushy home, his cushy job, his comfort, his, all that. Uh, he, leaves, he leaves it all to go camp out in a very rough area. And it's there that he begins to share his vision with the people of Jerusalem. And they get to work. In fact, I love this. Look what he writes. Verse 6 of chapter 4. He says, so we built the wall. That's kind of cool. If you go to Jerusalem today, um, which, by the way, I'd love to take you one day. Um, but you can actually, as you're walking through Jer Jerusalem, specifically the old city of Jerusalem, you can see part of, part of the wall that Nehemiah is talking about right here. So this is the wall that, that Nehemiah is talking about in, in this verse. I just, I, I love that. It, it's actually happened. This is the end. The wall was joined together to half its height. I love this. For the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work. Again, it just goes to show. Communities that are offered vision, big things happen. People will work their tail off for a worthy vision. But then the very next verse, if you're looking at, at your uh, Bibles, so again, chapter four, look at verse seven. Very next verse, enemy attacks. So there were those who, in the area who profited off Jerusalem's lack of walls, Jerusalem's poverty. People were, were um, profiting off that, some of what's happening in, in our area. And so the enemies, they, they joined forces. And this is, this is when Nehemiah's great leadership is really displayed. Verse 14 says, And I looked and I rose and I said, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives and fight for your homes. Remember who goes before us, we have God, and remember who's behind us, our families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. An amazing moment in history. I wish I could have seen this. As per Nehemiah's instruction, he tells the men, hey, grab a hammer with one hand, grab a sword with the other. We will hammer away, and we will fight off as we do this if we have to. Why? For the next generation. Not for you. For the next generation. It sounds like these, I read scripture like this, and I think of like, I think of those who've gone before us in our church. I think of guys like Walter Faust, architects who just before the Great Depression, when people were losing their jobs, a lot, a lot of fear, uh, looking for jobs, people were looking for jobs. Uh, Walter resigned, left a good paycheck to start a church, to start this church. 
and we all benefit from that sacrifice. I think of the men 15 years ago who put, off, who put off retirement, put retirement on hold to fund some building projects at our church. They invested in us. They went to their office for years so that we could have this. The question is, is what will we leave the next generation of believers in Chicagoland? And it gives us point number three, the city needs followers with bold commitment. With bold commitment. A recent study by Scientific American has concluded that we live in a world with commitment phobia. Anyone know anyone with commitment phobia? Yeah, like girlfriends kind of elbowing their boyfriends. No, seriously, it's a, it's a real thing. Our society struggles greatly to commit. And, and it's, it's not just divorce rates that have skyrocketed. A career changes are becoming the norm. To have a job for like two years is actually becoming quite normal. So it's like moving jobs, moving cities, moving, moving houses. Some of it's kind of cool, but there, there is a commitment phobia that is, that is greatly hurting us and the next generation. In some cases, it's just being communicated that if you don't like something, you don't just, if, if you don't, you know, if you don't like your spot, leave the marriage. If you're not happy, just switch jobs. Just get out of here and move. Instead of pressing through and actually making a difference and overcoming that obstacle, just move and find something else for the next two years until you don't like that and then just move on to something else. Making a difference means committing to, to long-term impact. If you really want to make a difference, you have to commit to long-term impact. How many of us have that view of our community? I'm committed to long-term impact. No, I get it. Watch the news for three minutes. Other states start looking real nice. All right, less crime, less taxes, warmer, more land. Sign me up. And I'm not saying that God can't lead you there. But what if God has something bigger for your life than the slow death of living in comfort? Are you committed to where God has you right now? God has you right here right now. Are you committed to where God has put you? There's a fantastic book written by a former lesbian named Rosaria Butterfield. And she's become one of my favorite girls. Like this, this girl is just legit. She's got such a cool story. She was a professor, a literature professor and a columnist who just like wrote pieces just attacking and slaughtering churches. And through a series of events, she ends up meeting Jesus. She marries a pastor and now she has a family. So now she's this pastor's wife and she wrote this, this fantastic book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it's a book all about her radical hospitality. She has boldly committed to her neighborhood. And I heard a radio interview with her, and she said, I don't love actually where I'm at. There's plenty of other places I'd love to live, but this is where God has put me. And so I have just committed to where I'm at. And she's committed to it in the most beautiful way. Uh, Rosaria made it a point to get to know all of her neighbors on her block and then start extending out. Every one of her neighbors on her block has been inside of her home multiple times. Not just to get to know them, but to like just to bless them, to, to pray for them. Constantly having people over, constantly walking over to people's house. Who does that anymore, right? Walking over to people's house and visiting and just kind of checking on people, sending meals over. This is just what she does. She's become a staple in her neighborhood. If any of her neighbors are going through something like a health issue or some sort of emergency, they call Rosaria first. In fact, I heard one interview where she said she, they needed to call the cops, but they actually called me first. It's not the first place in the world that she would pick to live, but she's boldly committed to where God has her. Is that something you can do? I'm committing to this broken community because that's impact. 
That's what those around us desperately need. It's absolutely foreign to them, but it's what they crave. I know, I get it. This is the place to run from. I get it. I've had my dreams of my own. But those who boldly commit, all right, this is where God has me. I'm gonna shine a light and I will love the place that is so easy to hate. People who can do that live stories that outlive their life. And this is exactly why we as a church believe that God is bringing us this big opportunity in our community. It is no coincidence that a school with a 900-seat auditorium would approach us in an influential area that desperately needs Jesus. 243,000 people within five miles, most of whom are very, 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 very lost. It was Jesus himself who said that the wealthy are the hardest to reach. And yet the ones that he did helped make a great impact. The area that God is directing us to is an influential area of the city with very few churches. Some have called it like the graveyard of churches. An area where churches have, have struggled, especially as of late. An area that is known to mask the pain with materialism. It's a, it's a, group, of, it's, it's a group that churches have tended to avoid, actually. I know it sounds weird, but if you actually look at the statistics of where church plants are in the last five years, we have, the church has stayed away from the affluent because we've realized it's just harder to reach them. Even though it's kind of funny, it's just shocking to us, like, well, Jesus said that. But for the most part, we stayed away from affluent areas. But when you actually peek behind the curtain, you see the same exact problems that the rest of the world faces, only compounded by their ability to throw money at the problems and make it worse. So many divided families, divided by infidelity, riddled with addictions, while being careful to look good on the outside, on the inside, absolutely miserable messes in desperate need of the gospel. And because of their position, that brokenness just kind of trickles down throughout the rest of the city. And so maybe, just maybe, God is stirring something right here. Like personally for me, I've been praying for this spot for 10 years. We were offered this location 10 years ago. We just weren't able to take it at the time. We turned it down, and, and we should have turned it down. But now things are all lining up, and I believe great things are lining up. But what is needed for this is commitment. God is going to write a story here. I can't wait to be part of it. Well, getting back to the text, Jerusalem gets the wall built. Project is not done, by the way, but the, the wall is built and I love what Nehemiah does. At the end of the books, if you, beginning of chapter seven, we're not gonna like read through it because I'm totally running out of time, I apologize. But the beginning of chapter seven, uh, Nehemiah throws the party of the century and he blasts the area with invites. So in chapter seven, Nehemiah hires singers to stand on the walls and to sing out from the walls. Uh, he forms bands to play at the gates. Jerusalem has more energy and louder music than a downtown nightclub. Families start coming out to see these, the, the new walls. This massive party breaks out in Jerusalem. And it's this very party that leads to this great revival among God's people. And it gives us our last point. What our city needs is followers with booming celebrations. This city needs churches who know how to celebrate. There's this little theme in scripture that's often overlooked. And maybe because sometimes us Christians can be a little stiff and stuffy but believe it or not, one of the most command things in scripture is actually celebrations. God wants his people to party because God's kingdom is a big party. Now, Christians don't necessarily have that reputation for being the greatest partiers, but we should. In fact, uh, last night, we were, uh, so we had a volunteer night, and so we just had like a fun thing. We had like a, an illusionist, and uh, my dad did a ventriloquist act, which was something, and... Uh, <laughs> 
it was it was just it was a blast. We we had just a blast. And one guy was walking out in the in the lobby, and he just said to me, he's like, Junior, I just gotta say, like, I would have never thought church could be this fun. But like church is just so much fun. I was like, absolutely, because church is supposed to be fun. Like when you look closely at scripture, the amount of times that God asks his people to party, it is wild. In the Old Testament, there were seven annual festivals that God wanted his people to throw. He wanted his people to party, partly so that the children could see God for who he is. Oh, we serve an awesome, fun God. And then other nations would look at the nation of Israel celebrating and think they must have something we don't have because look at all their celebrations. It's one of the things that Jesus was criticized for, partying. I grew up around uh, many different Christians. Some were just like a blast to be around. Others were definitely not. They're just sticks in the mud, stuffy critics. Uh, in fact, the school that I went to, <laughs> I just kind of laugh because um, we, we would have these chapels and we'd have speakers come into these chapels and they're always like ancient old men. And they would, they would get up and they would, they would preach. And like almost every single one of them is the same story. They would get up and they'd say, before Jesus, I was wild. I was a partier. And then I found Jesus, started reading my Bible, going to church. It's like, oh, that's awesome. And then they'd say, my partying days are over. I'd be thinking like, bro, no, your partying days have just begun. Like now you know how to really party because you have something to party about. Like don't tell me you were more fun before Jesus. It should be the opposite. You should be more fun after Jesus because Jesus brings the party. This was Jesus' first miracle. What do you do? Water to wine. Communicating what? I bring the party. Seriously. I noticed... I noticed uh, growing up, and this is for real, most of my friends, because I had a lot of Christian friends, and it's really sad because a lot of my Christian friends have left the church, don't want anything to do with Jesus anymore, and it breaks my heart. Um, and it breaks my heart a lot because I think, like, how do I avoid that with my own girls? And part of it, not all of it, but part of it is I look at the parents. The parents who were fun, they just love Jesus and they loved having a good time with their kids. It seems like, for the most part, my friends who had fun parents who loved Jesus, those friends stuck around. It was my friends who had somber, always strict, stick-in-the-mud parents. Those friends, they, they just ended up saying, like, I don't want that life. And I kind of look at them like, bro, I don't blame you. But that's not following Jesus. I don't know what that is, but that's not following Jesus because following Jesus is a party. I think a prerequisite for being a leader of God's people is you have to know how to throw a good party. If you can't throw a good party... You shouldn't be leading God's people because the kingdom of God is a party. God commanded parties and Jesus threw parties. It's actually a book that I'd love to write one day, The Lost Parties of Christianity. It's like, I, I don't know, it's just kind of intriguing. I have no material for it, just a, just a title, but I love the title. But Christian parties isn't necessarily something that we're used to, but it is something that our world needs. It is something that your neighborhood needs. It is something that our, our city needs. I guess absolutely share your faith. Absolutely study your Bible. Go deeper with scripture. Absolutely give generously. Be kind. But don't forget the party. Show our hopeless world that we have joy worth something. Be a follower that celebrates. Celebrate every little win you can. And, and you get to, I mean, we do this around our church, right? If you serve on the weekends, you know this. Like our teams gather before, before the service and we share wins. Just like these little mini celebrations that prep our hearts for the bigger celebration when we're all together. 
Every Tuesday, our staff gets together and we share wins together and we just celebrate as a staff together. This weekend at church, we have three little parties going on. We had two volunteer nights where it was just a big party. And then Sunday, there's a party for North Shore. We're gonna go to North Shore, we're gonna party. And you were invited to that party. I'd love to party with you. But party. Be a follower with joy. Yes, there's a lot of brokenness around us. There's a lot of pain around us. But what our church needs, what our city needs, is celebrations as well. We commit to our communities and we celebrate every single little blessing of a win that God gives us. See, here in this text, Jerusalem needed walls. And it got walls. But once the walls were up, the temple was still leveled. The temple, there was a lot of work still left to be done. But it was there that Nehemiah knows what, this, what the city needs right now is not to start work right now on the temple. What we need right now is to party and celebrate this win. And if we are gonna be the hope for this world, which I believe that we are, this world needs to see a people who celebrates wins along the way. So church, let's stop complaining. I'm saying that to myself, okay? Let's stop complaining about our mission field. Let's embrace it. Let's approach it not with anger, but with a broken heart. Let's offer it vision. Let's commit to it. Let's party. To be candid with you, I've been, I, this whole time I've just been preaching to myself. I really have been, because I can get so, so fed up with the insanity around us. I can get pretty angry. In fact, I even like, I kind of made it a rule in our house, and I'm thankful my wife didn't have to follow up, but she did. I just said, like, we're turning off the news. Like, it's just not doing anything for, I'm not saying you need to do that. It's just in our family. So we just, we can't do this anymore, like, in our home. Like, there's just, it's, it's making us too angry. There are things happening in our world, in our community, that absolutely sickens me and it angers me. And then I look at my girls and I think, like, do I really want to raise you here? Like, do I really want to send you out into the world here? Like, can we just retreat? Can we go build a bunker? Can we go find an island somewhere? We'll bring you with, too, but, like, can we just go find something? But I'll be honest. It's in those moments, and I think you're guilty of it, too. It's in those moments that I'm tempted to start making decisions, to start parenting, and living out of fear. Is it really the story that you want? Is it really the story that we're going to live? When God said, here you go, let's make a great story. And we just retreat out of fear. Not a broken heart, just anger. No commitment. They're just, you know, let's like, live, leave as soon as we can. No vision, not looking for anything to celebrate, just morning headlines every day. It's awful, but sometimes I feel like I'm just running out the clock until Jesus comes back. I feel like that, and I shouldn't. And yet God has put you and I here for such a time as this. I don't get it. I don't get it. But somehow God in his infinite wisdom saw you and I as a good team for this city. And we can either huddle up and we can mourn the insanity around us and and fire each other up and preach to the choir and get all angry and look for a way out. Or we can take this invitation into a greater story. Forget the slow death of comfort and embrace together this wild ride that God has created us, positioned us, and brought us together for. That's me. But what about you? So what? That's the question we always ask. We come to God's word, all right, so what? God speaks through his word. God spoke through Nehemiah. 
The question I want to leave you with, and we are running out of time, so we're not going to take this very long, but the question I want to stick with you on your drive home is this right here. How does your heart need to change towards Chicagoland? This is just a question I had to ask myself this week as I prepared for this message. And I think it's a question you have to ask yourself. How does your heart need to change toward the mission field that God has given you? Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.